0: Oh my goodness. All right, and welcome to another episode of the Geopolitical Pivot. It is your host, Samaj McDowell, and we're here with a full crowd and a new guest that I'm going to allow Wainwright to introduce, and she's so adamant I mean, to we have a no, tradition. No, no, you're pretty,
1: no, you're pretty, we do. We have a tradition we have a tradition. the George Cannon Group where oh, I'm sorry. guest introduces himself. So let, let's have Second Lieutenant Hazen Williams
2: <laughs> introduce himself and talk a little bit about what he does. Yeah, so my name is Hazen Williams. I just graduated from Georgetown, and I'm interning at the Southeast Asia program over at the Center for Strategic International Studies. Um, I have been studying Southeast Asia for my undergraduate degree, and now I'm pursuing it in my actual career. Um, So that's been my area of interest now for four years. And remind me, you, you mentioned that you were going to get published in an academic journal. Was that correct, a while back? I am working on a piece that the diplomat might pick up.
1: Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Well, cool, obviously, Samaj is here, we've heard his lovely voice. I'm here, Wayne Wright is here, and Brian Rebus, unfortunately, is. Snuck into the building for the seventeen. He actually in a row. did. Yeah, he, he actually snuck. He didn't I tell was, anyone. A, I was about to call you, no, and then someone so comes and like, "Never mind." No, he <laughs> wasn't. He he legitimately <laughs> didn't notify anyone. Nobody. His
0: That's a security answer. Yeah, Opsec was compromised. <laughs> yeah, so, i don't feel safe anymore. Uh-
1: <laughs> but in regards to what we're going to talk about today, obviously from the guest you guys can probably tell we're going to hit on Southeast Asia, particularly Indonesia, and talk about their geostrategic importance. Uh, we're also going to talk about. Uh, how Russia conducts cyber warfare and its history of election tampering. And we're going to finish up with a nice little what if, um, and, and I'll, we'll talk about more about that topic when we get to it. Um, but going back to Indonesia, we'll, we'll start off with Hazen and maybe hear a little bit about um, why you decided to, to research Indonesia, to kind of choose it as your area of study, and, and what its importance to U.S. policymakers
2: is or should be. Yeah, so Indonesia is more or less on the radar because it is the largest country in Southeast Asia. It's the fourth largest country by population in the world, and it's also the largest democracy after India and the United States, and it's also the largest Muslim-majority democracy. Indonesia's, due to strategic importance, can't be understated in terms of trade routes that are important to the United States. It has a presence in the Malacca Straits, the Sunda Straits, and the Lombok Straits um, which gives it a vital role in the South China sea dispute, since all of those feed into the South China sea. It's also located near our key ally or not ally partner, Australia, but that is, which also gives it a lot of importance. And Indonesia generally is just a very complicated country with 17,000 islands spanning the distance from the continental United States, vast ethnic and linguistic diversity, um, you have Muslim-majority West, Christian-majority East, and then Hindu-majority Bali, which is the island everyone seems to think of when they think of Indonesia. Which <laughs> it's a place to vacation, right? It's absolutely great, It's an amazing place to vacation, having been there myself. It's beautiful, but it's not all of Indonesia. And so I think a lot of Americans tend to lump some Indonesia as Bali, um, which... I mean, Indonesia definitely leans into a little bit in terms of tourism, but also hosting a lot of its various summits in either Jakarta or Bali, um, which are the two locations where most Americans are aware of in Indonesia. Um, In terms of its importance, specifically to U.S. policymakers, I would say it comes down to the fact that Indonesia was one of the countries that founded the non-aligned movement, and we tend to get frustrated with Indonesia because we want them to be more... Partisan than they want to be themselves.
1: Yeah, no, but I think that's the key to at least how they view their um, success will be, particularly economic success. I mean, that's kind of bled in their view or strategy of being non aligned, of doing deals with everyone, is kind of bled into IOs in the region, specifically ASEAN, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, ASEAN is definitely a reflection of the policies of the countries in it, which is. Part of why on certain topics you see nothing getting done, for instance, in the South China Sea, ASEAN hasn't really been able to get a response at all, Mm -hmm. largely because countries that aren't in the dispute or refuse to recognize their role in the dispute don't necessarily prioritize the South China Sea dispute in the same way that the littoral littoral states do. Indonesia under Jokowi has kind of had its head in the sand about the South China Sea, definitely not recognizing the contradiction between the nine-dash line and territory and you know, water claims of yeah. Indonesia, mm-hmm. um, which has been good for Jokowi's ability to de-escalate conflict with China and other areas where they really don't, they really have their issues in terms of IUU fishing, um, where their Minister of Fisheries really just likes to blow up Chinese boats, um, which is really popular in the public opinion. Um, that minister is very popular in Indonesia, um, but it they're less popular in China, as you can probably imagine. Um, in terms of a larger context, though, of ASEAN, Indonesia has been the de facto leader since its founding back in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And with Indonesia coming into the ASEAN chairmanship next year, it'll be interesting to see where that actually takes ASEAN. Something, well, something I want to ask about, when it comes to Indonesia,
3: whenever I hear any news when it comes to Indonesia, I usually hear more about domestic stuff to do. I never hear anything about their foreign policy that much, unless it involves, like, maybe increasing trade. Like, the last time I heard about them, like on the news is when they said they wanted to move the capital, their capital from Jakarta to, Kalimantan, which is the only thing I've heard.
0: Well, Indonesia's position, at least their foreign affairs, um, at least as far as I've seen, has been rather neutral, in a sense, uh, which if you will, <laughs> exactly you call people non-aligned. Um, but it's understanding as to why they would choose a non-alignment position given their geographic location. Uh, you're literally sitting at the mouthpiece between tr- maritime trade, between, as far as the Asia-Pacific, and the Western world, or even uh, the West in particular, or even Africa. Um, when it comes to, I guess, Indonesians, Indonesia's foreign affairs, um, especially now where I think they're Leading the G20 summit?
2: They are. They're the head of the G20. Right. Year.
0: And so, with everything with the sanctions on Putin, it's like, okay, well, we can't play as a pro, let's say, DC or pro Moscow um, in this sense where you have this obligation to uphold not just a non aligned tradition, but clearly the non aligned or the non aligned foreign policy has provided them a lot of strategic gain. Especially when it, come, it comes to becoming uh, net exporters in certain mineral resources, mm-hmm. um, maintaining some sense of stability of relations, uh, whether that's with Australia, although they don't really trust them, China, although they really don't trust China, um, and some sentiment, some of those same sentiments towards uh, the United States and even Russia. So, it seems that like their foreign affairs molding, especially with their dependence um, after World War II, kind of naturally fits in being non-aligned. Specifically for their their geographic position. So
1: before we go back to Brian, like just to summarize, so you guys would say Indonesia's uh, tradition of non alignment has gave them in- incredible economic gains. Is, is that a safe way? Yeah, I mean, there's
0: also one. I forget which country um actually utilizes Indonesia to launch um what it utilized for space programs and satellite launchings, um, because of their location regarding the At equator. equator, it's hard to be. Um. Okay. So, um. Indonesia's non-aligned uh, foreign affairs and geopolitics in relations, let's say, like India,
1: you know, even though uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: um has lit, has actually over time provided them with substantial economic, um, financial, and now even political um, influence.
3: I think it also benefits them in other ways. For example, Indonesia is basically one of the largest nations that is a collection of multiple islands, and not just like small islands, like really big islands. Some of the islands are the biggest in the world, and each island has their own different types of cultures on them. I think I forgot. I feel horrible that I forgot the name. The person you brought here, go
0: Which one? I bring everybody. <laughs> he really <laughs> does, and then he's like um, are you, what are the strangers? The you person bring? who went to
3: Indonesia, Beverly, does. Beverly. Beverly, yeah, she went to Beverly, and she explained this even mm-hmm. when she was with us. Like each island has different parts of the culture, even when how for how they practice um, Islam can be different based on the island
2: culture there. Yeah. Well, I mean, Hazen, Absolutely. you you've been to what three or four? I've been oh. to one. Mm-hmm.
1: One, one oh, that. Okay, I was supposed to
2: go back for a boring and go yeah. to another two, but okay, COVID kept happening. So would you say Beverly's statement on <laughs>
1: how? culturally diverse Indonesia
2: is, is is accurate? Oh, absolutely. So if you look at it just from a linguistic perspective, the national language Bahasa Indonesia, everyone generally will be able to speak. However, on an island level, you'll have in Java, Bahasa Java, which we know as Javanese, but then even on a lower level, some cities have their own languages. So even beyond ethnic and religious abilities, and at diversity in Indonesia, looking sheerly at the language, there's this national unifying language, but there's very clear divisions of I speak this language because of where I live. Um, if you look at Papua, this is where that goes absolutely berserk. <laughs> there are so many languages being spoken across the area. Papua, isn't there... I think it's very dormant, but isn't there a type of insurgency going on over there? It's, like it's a been like? a very slow-burned insurgency since the 60s. Um, OPM, the Organizasi Papua Merdeka, is their Indonesian, or is it the Papuan independence movement? It's been increasingly in the news um, relative to where it was a year ago, likely following the fact that Indonesia has officially started treating OPM instead of as a secessionist movement or a separatist movement, as a terrorist organization, Mm -hmm. um, which has... Fundamentally changed how Indonesia interacts with the organization um, They the organization itself was livid understandably at being called like it is very delegitimizing to be called a terrorist organization when you're seeking independence um, and It's there's been a large silence on that from the West um, USA Australia both have never like have not made a statement in the past year necessarily supporting or denouncing Indonesia's treatment of OPM as a terrorist organization, but it has fundamentally changed how Indonesia utilizes counterterrorism response, in which has implications for how the United States should engage with Indonesia on counterterrorism, given that Indonesia is now using counterterrorism as a way to suppress insurgency.
1: And, and aside from like the cultural diversity, Indonesia is... Just in terms of area, it has massively different um, requirements on, on an island basis when it comes to environmental and geographic concerns. So I mentioned this to Hazen, I think, a couple, couple of days ago. Um, I was looking at the seismic activity in Indonesia, because I'm weird and random like that. And almost every island um, has a significant amount of earthquakes, ranging from minor to major, yes, except for but, Borneo. Are they on Borneo? the ring
2: fire? I'm sorry. Are they on the ring yes, fire? Yeah. Yes. Or... Yeah. Last so, week there was one. In, there was an earthquake in Sumatra. It's like every week you'll see new earthquakes in like the six register. For so, so a lot in of
1: so a lot of these islands they have these these pre major earthquakes, Borneo does not, which it it kind of throws off how Jakarta um, uh, funds earthquake relief. Because obviously it attacks Borneo and they bring it into the central government, but then that money goes away from Borneo and towards helping um, other islands for seismic activity uh, relief. So it it increases tensions on that way. So, I mean, just... just, Part of
2: the complication there is Borneo, Kalimantan, on the Indonesian side, is not one state. It's several different provinces mm -hmm. across the island. So it's... More than just Kalimantan is paying into Indonesia's earthquake response more than it's getting out of it, but it's like several provinces. Yes. Um,
0: Wasn't the I forget what year it was, where um, I think there was a massive volcanic eruption so massive that it sent a tsunami to India. Oh, that sounds yeah. yeah, That was two thousand four. That was the Boxer
2: Day. Or this Achi tsunami in are those
0: of types of then we're talking about Indonesia's geographic makeup, those
2: I guess size volcanic eruptions are those common or that one was particularly lethal, largely because of how close it happened to mm-hmm. Indonesia's or, like coastline. Mm-hmm. and it sent the tsunami, they had less than ten minutes warning. yeah, um, mm-hmm. and it hit, Banda Aceh, which is a tourist location mm-hmm. in a region, in a province that was also having an insurgency at the time. Um, and it definitely had impacts across like it hit Madagascar even. Yeah. Um so it, it had effects across the entire Indian Ocean. Yeah, and it's not
1: just tsunamis you gotta worry about with Indonesia. Indonesia has more I think active volcanoes than any other country in the world. And mm-hmm. it goes yeah, about yeah. seventy seventy six or seventy five. Uh, So that's something you got to think of, well, if you're going to be coordinating disaster relief, well, that's that's a big part of any country's foreign policy towards Indonesia.
2: Right. Um, But with that specific tsunami, if we look at how disaster relief patterns have gone with Indonesia, um, it's interesting to look at how China does not play into that. mm -hmm. Um, You would expect China as a regional influence to have had a larger role in the disaster response. And for the... Tsunami um, than it did. Real like countries you wouldn't expect to be as interested. For instance, Norway actually provided more in mm-hmm. aid than China did um, for this international coalition. It was largely headed by the United States for this international response, both in Indonesia but also in Malaysia, Thailand, and some of these other lar- really impacted countries. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting that initially, we really had to twist China's arm to get them to provide anything substantive on in terms of aid for natural disaster response in Indonesia.
1: That makes
0: sense. Um, oh, go ahead. go ahead.
2: Well, I mean, there's, there might be
1: a historical reason for China's reluctance to provide Indonesia with any kind of disaster relief assistance. I mean, it wasn't it was in 64, I believe, um, there was a year where, I can't remember the picture, there was some kind of aborted coup against Sukarno, the old president of Indonesia. Yes. And I believe Sukarno... President's a
2: loose word for Sukarno. Yes, but I believe
1: Sukarno blamed it on the Chinese living in Indonesia, and in the backlash, there was like a million Chinese who
2: died. And I don't
1: know if anyone could, could verify
2: So that, there then, was definitely a mass purging of communists, which definitely at that point in time would have entailed a lot of ethnic Chinese Mm -hmm. individuals and still to some extent does. We just saw massive protesting against the governor of Jakarta who was, I believe it was Jakarta, who was a Chinese man who had, who enacted some policies that were designed to support small to middle-sized enterprises. What were perceived as being pro-Chinese, which led to mass protests by some of the more. I remember during that time, wasn't there also the.
3: Uh, I remember Indonesia was trying to support rebels in Malaysia's area of Borneo, but I don't know if that had anything to do with it either. Because I think there were some, like, Chinese communist groups that were operating the area,
1: too. But. That must have been way back in the day. No, that really was, that so. was in the 60s or 70s. Yeah, I, yeah. so I
3: can't really
2: say it's fully direct. It's just something that popped in my head. Yeah, I mean, but- Sata and Sarawak still are not thrilled to be part of the Malaysia. They still have their independence <laughs> movements that can flash up every now and then. Mm-hmm.
1: But going back to the China issue, that might be why there's, like, an historical enmity that remains
2: to this day between Indonesians and the People's Republic of China. I mean trust of China is low across the region. Yeah. I wouldn't mean, necessarily <laughs> say that's unique to Indonesia, but No, but it, it does oh. exist. I yeah, yeah, that's something you gotta take into
1: account.
3: No, what's I found interest sometimes what I find interesting is when I hear when I look at a few areas of history within this area, more specifically Malaysia, Singapore, and Indonesia, is there's actually is a good portion of Chinese people that do live in these areas, which you yeah. most people would not expect really.
0: True. Sure. Um But I mean, that also proves to show, um, kind of, even the current China's view, not on Indonesia in particular, but just, you know, I'm a stickler for geography. So where where Indonesia's position, you talk about the Malacca Strait, um, I mean, with substantial global trade goes to the Malacca Strait on a daily basis, and just the the presence of uh, America's maritime um, physical presence there via the Navy. No wonder why China seeks a canal, at least through Thailand. Um, oh,
2: yeah.
0: And it just begs the question of we see, you know, China now with uh, New Guinea, um, they're trying to form a new strategic partnership with them to uh, preserve or assist with security endeavors to the current administration against impending or potential ethnic violence. Um, and then there are agreements or partnerships that they're making with the Solomon Islands. Um, this then begs the question on the rather fragile relationship between Indonesia and Australia. And the reason why I say fragile, um, I mean, if we look at colonial-wise, look at Timor. Um, yes. And that in itself is excuse my language, a clusterfuck, but...
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Hazel, we just talked about this today. ago. you want to
2: yeah. go off on Timor-Leste? Well, so, yeah, so Timor-Leste is definitely one of the areas where you've seen the test of Australia and Indonesia's relationship, where Australia for a long time refused to acknowledge what Indonesia was doing in Timor-Leste. And then when they did, finally, through the UN, it was very much a complete 180 on their Mm. policy where they went from just turning a blind eye to being an active part of the coalition to help make it to more or less stay Mm. independent and it's actually a really good case of where Australia has been a bad partner Uh, they were really (laughs) fundamental in helping to more or less stay set up the petroleum fund which was based on an oil field that lies between Timor Leste in Australia, um, which would be te- legally within Timor Leste's EEZ. Mm-hmm. However, as soon as Timor Leste becomes independent in 2002, it's no longer under any sort of protection by the United Nations. Australia claims at least half the oil field. And then rather than taking Australia to the I, any sort of international tribunal where... Realistically, from legal claims, there would have been some sort of settlement, likely where, Timor-Leste would have received the majority of the oil fields. Australia used its leverage to ensure that it was able to split a hefty part of that oil field from Timor-Leste, and realistically, that did stunt Timor-Leste's growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are twenty years out now from Timor-Leste being independent, and they are still not a part of ASEAN. They are actively talking about it, Ramos Horta, who has just elected their president, who has been their president before, has declared that it is one of his priorities. Interestingly, Hun Shen, the current ASEAN chair, seems very interested in this. And I think from a symbolic standpoint, Indonesia has to be Mm -hmm. the country that is chair when East Timor does eventually become an ASEAN member state. Mm -hmm. Um, So it'll be interesting to see whether that happens next year given that Hunshan is interested in setting that groundwork. But Australia is definitely, going back to the key point of this, Australia definitely is part of why Timor-Leste has struggled to hit the indicators that ASEAN is looking for mm-hmm. to be willing to admit them. Even though right now Timor-Leste is definitely beyond where Myanmar was when it was joining back mm-hmm. in the late 90s, early 2000s. Interesting.
0: This is why I can't keep up with Asia Pacific. I Am mean, right?
1: Yeah, but I mean, it's constantly. Well, Indonesia has a great is. part of Timor Leste, either. Like I they mean, mean, tried been trying to. Yeah, I mean, forgot like they try to prevent independence. You know what I mean? So like that's that. that they, it was that, their, just, like, they Well, were, that was the colonizer was, there. there. Well, Portugal have been there for what six hundred years. So, I mean, yeah, you got to put that in perspective. Yeah. But but what I'm saying is, I want to I want to explore the relationship between Indonesia in Australia a little bit more, because we kind of yeah. circled around it. Oh, Brian, are you looking at me with raised eyebrows? Is there something you want to put a
3: cap on before we move to that? I think about Timor-Este, but we can, we can go Yeah, on. no, go oh, ahead, Yeah, yeah, go yeah, ahead. You know, no, I, up. yeah. No, it's just I found that, I think, whenever yeah. I think about Timor-Este and all of that, like, yeah, like you just said, it was a Portuguese colony for, like, over 500, 600 years. As soon as they finally gained independence in 1975, the Indonesians like, oh, no, we already claimed this territory, this is ours now. And That's basically a nice little scoop.
1: Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. There's <laughs> like nobody's paying it. That's a that's problems. an area where East Timor is an area where both Australia yeah. and Indonesia have really not been yeah but from great I, neighbors. But yeah, but, from what I
3: know, that's at least from my knowledge, I think that's usually where like a lot of their relations today like draw from It's literally yeah. that thing and how Australia is so proactive and basically just. Grabbing it,
1: yeah. But I, I I want to move away from East Timor. It's, it's yeah. a fascinating topic, but I do want to talk about the relationship between Indonesia and Australia. And I'm looking to Hazen to Yeah.
2: So it it's interesting. So the Lowy Institute did just publish a study where it indicated that public trust in Australia has gone down over since um, has gone down significantly since 2011. However. If you read the full report, it seems to just be that most people don't know what Australia is doing. <laughs> um, it, the majority didn't know what the Quad was. The majority don't know that Australia is trying to access nuclear submarines through AUKUS. Indonesia largely didn't support AUKUS from a political standpoint, but like most of Southeast Asia was very put off by AUKUS to begin with, um, and have slowly warmed up to it, but it just seems like that Icy responses trickle down into the Indonesian populace. Um, it, the report does reference though that there are multiple ways that Lowy measures various types of response, public responses, and one of the other ones that they compare it to is they have a feelings thermometer <laughs> where Australia still is scoring comparable to other it's lower now than Malaysia and Singapore but it's still higher than Vietnam so it's not necessarily at a point where I would say the overall feeling towards Australia is bad I it's certainly deteriorated but it's certainly still better than China um, yeah. and realistically probably the United States in some regards yeah I would say if you want to talk about uh, who's popular
1: with Indonesia right now? I'd say. Well, where do most young Indonesia you, Indonesians go to
2: vacation and study? Well, that would still be Japan, South Korea, and the United yeah, States.
1: Yeah, I mean, Japan's always been Indonesia's main economic model. I South mean, Indian. yes. So, Japan I mean, also
2: did colonize them during World War Two. <laughs> this is also <laughs> true. <laughs> but but uh, what I'm saying is, but that's
1: but they they have that's not held them back from. From looking at Japan as some kind of model. And in a lot of Indonesians also go to Australia to that's, study and vacation.
2: That's definitely true. A lot of the tourists in Australia all right a lot of the tourists in Indonesia are also from Australia. Yeah. Um, it's interesting though, with specifically Japan across the region, Japan is kind of considered the next best partner after the United States and China. Um, where you would expect that to probably be Australia at a given proximity, it is actually. Japan, and then after that, the EU, uh, that's based on the ISEAS um, State of Southeast Asia survey that they do every year, where it's, Australia is still not polling well across the region, it's not necessarily polling poorly, it's still ahead of other people like South, I actually don't know relative to South Korea, but it's polling better than India, Mm -hmm. Um, but you would expect it to be polling better than it is, Mm -hmm. given its location and interest in the region.
1: Awkward pause. Trying to, the no, podcast. Trying to, I don't well, it's because I'm like I'm trying to just. Dude. Hayes and Williams is dropping knowledge on us. So. it was very <laughs> much appreciative,
0: but you know, it's, just, um, it's just fascinating and interesting when you talk about you know Asia Pacific is not my 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 area of expertise. I like the the Wild Wests of the Sahel and, and the Middle East, um, but um, I mean, but even in that sense, we talk about the Greater Mena region um, on how just going to flip it to MENA. So you
2: know, <laughs> well, to go towards so Mina, also, some right. of the countries that are scoring very well on these Lowy Institute indicators Sorry. in Indonesia are include Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Palestine. <gasps> and scoring, <into> <laughs> Palestine <laughs> and scoring particularly poorly is Israel. So yeah, if, well. as a lead into Mina for you. Very mm. interesting.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. If, I mean, we can go that way. I wanted to ask before we do that, though, mm. real quick. What what are some current threats that are adversely impacting Indonesia's national security? What, what would you say are the greatest... From perspective or my perspective? Yes.
2: Yes. 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 Okay. So Indonesia had... in If you look at their department or their Ministry of Defense, they've kind of outlined the three big threats to Indonesia's national security being separatism mm-hmm. and insurgency, um, threats to its... Territorial claims, so kind of a veiled look at the South China Sea and China, and then LGBT people. So, um, those are the three that the Uh, military is focused on. Very specific. Why Um, is the military focused on LGBT? No, no,
1: hold on. That might explain why Australia is not lending as much aid as it otherwise could. That's a big part. Like, Australia lends a lot of aid to, let's say, modernizing archaic social relationships within Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands and Southeast Asia and that might explain why they're not given as much aid to Indonesia as they otherwise could.
2: I mean sure, I don't know if anyone is looking specifically at the military listing LGBT people as a, mil- as a priority for them as necessarily indicative of a national policy. Right now the way Jokowi's government work operates Seems to be that a lot of the different bureaus seem to operate on their own. There doesn't necessarily seem to be a national cohesive response. So even though the military is explicitly and like homophobic right now, mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily indicate that the entire Indonesian government is homosexuality. Still, nationally, is not legal <laughs> in Indonesia. Like <laughs> <actually, laughs> really? that is largely a non-enforced law, except maybe in Aceh, where they have literal Sharia law.
0: <laughs> that's what um, that, really, that really said yeah So, um, but it's interesting because I know during the height of even with uh, ISIS Indonesia had some uh, flare ups with Is- Islamic State-esque um, terrorist groups uh, yeah case. I mean
2: most of Southeast Asia and in, specifically insular Southeast Asia did um, I would say that mostly affected the Philippines but Indonesia right. definitely has had its own threats from this spread of ISIS like ideologies. Interestingly, though, like Jema Islamia, which was kind of the largest terrorist organization operating in Southeast Asia for a while, hasn't had an attack in a decade. Right. So right. it's interesting to look at how, in terms of a counterterrorism response, Indonesia's focused more on de radicalization rather than elimination. And by rather than I, instead of like attacking the 10 madrasas we know Jema Islamiyah works out of, Indonesia has kind of taken this more backed-up approach of we will just keep track of who's coming in and out of those madrasas and kind of let you all do your thing. And it almost operates more like a political party now than a terrorist organization, which is an interesting way to de-escalate it.
1: Mm.
0: Kind of That's an way interesting to way to de-escalate it,
2: however...
0: It doesn't right. necessarily resolve it. Right. So to be <laughs> just because there hasn't been an
2: attack in a decade doesn't necessarily mean there won't be one. Sure. Right. But it is noteworthy. Just kind of like a, a post-it note to consider to like put up somewhere.
0: Right. Um, you know, I'm cussing somebody else right now about high inflations. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, that's actually um, See, I don't really, I've never really paid attention to Indonesia other than, like, Komodo dragons. So. Komodo dragons are
2: great. Yeah, so, the National Zoo over there is so pretty cool. He's yeah. there. Was there a Komodo dragon? See, I didn't know that. Yeah, they have one Komodo dragon. His name, his name is Murphy. And name a Komodo dragon, Murphy? Why not? Well, Samaj is
1: obsessed with animals in any country. He loves capybaras. You guys I love you happy Thank, Thank you. you.
0: <laughs> See, here's where we are this They, they yeah. don't do anything. They I, just
2: sit there. That <laughs> just means I have trouble with relations for both of you. But, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, honestly, only vibes, and it's excellent. Vibe. They just sit there. So.
1: Well, I mean, is there anything else you guys want to talk about regarding Indonesia? I guess
2: the inflation point, I think, is interesting, just as a, a kind of wrapping up point. And then I wanted to go back to the G20 summit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Indo- like, Jokowi's presidency has very much been focused on Indonesia's economic development and economic growth has kind of been his number one thing. Um, so, going back to inflation, with all the oil supply, energy supply shocks that have come out of the Russian invasion of Ukraine... It's been really interesting to see how that has impacted Indonesia's oil, or not oil, palm oil exports, um, where Indonesia domestic supply of palm oil really went down. And palm oil might sound trivial, but this is their second largest export, um, and they are the largest exporter of palm oil. I I wouldn't be that
3: surprised because it wasn't that long ago that Ecuador wanted their largest exports was bananas and anything that
2: happened to that. (laughs) A while. <laughs> oh yeah, it's kind of like the Philippines with their bananas. They're still mad at China for um, tar- putting a tariff on Philippine bananas after the Scarborough Shoal dispute in 2012. So Indonesia, though, put a tariff like put an export limit on palm oil and just took it off. So it's been interesting to see how on an economic level we're still seeing the Russian invasion of Ukraine have regional effects in Southeast Asia, um, which is not necessarily a region you would expect to be Directly impacted, but a lot of the energy supply has been for many countries oh. When you got it's an interconnected economy like stuff's gonna hurt you in weird ways that you can't even
1: predict That's just how it goes. What are you gonna say Brian? No, it's just interesting like no, I, when you're
3: talking about oil It's like okay. I knew Indonesia has a makes a lot of oil and then I hear palm oil So I was like
2: thinking in my head I like what? <laughs> yeah, no palm oil is definitely a major export for Indonesia And it's interesting because you would have more associated it with oil, but Indonesia actually got kicked out of OPEC because it is no longer a net exporter of Mm -hmm. oil. So um, that's kind of interesting. But then just to kind of wrap up, we had talked earlier about Indonesia's role as the G20 president and how that would have ramifications for the United States and for Russia. And it's been very clear that Russia is more getting what it wants than what the United States is getting. But the United States has obviously it staged a walkout of one of the planning meetings because Russia was being allowed to attend. And it's interesting that the United States has taken this hardline approach given how we've talked about Indonesian desire to be non-aligned. Um, and very much in line with Indonesia's desire to have a non-aligned response. Indonesia kind of, took a step back and was like, how can we give the United States, like how can we throw the United States a bone without having to like completely isolate ourselves from Russia? And Jokowi's kind of compromised response is now they're inviting Zelensky. Um, So Zelensky will be, has now been invited to the G20 summit, um, which has been an interesting way for Indonesia to maintain its non-aligned position in light of pressure from the United States to take a very aligned response. That is very, very interesting. Brian's that been, is well, definitely I, the news headline you, you, that's I, been around the most. No, I was going
3: to say, we <laughs> <I'm> very intrigued.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, no. Indonesia, I mean, that's a... I would say it's a blind spot, though, for a lot of U.S.
2: policymakers. Oh, it absolutely is. All of Southeast Asia is. Why is that?
1: What's the reason?
2: I mean, it's Southeast Asia, it was our second front in the global war on terrorism. It was not our first front. It was... Is a ser- it's a bunch of countries where it's kind of, I hate to do this comparison, but it's almost like Africa, where we don't necessarily put any sort of policy priority on it because the levels of development are realistically lower, and we don't necessarily see as much of a direct benefit. I think mm-hmm. that is rapidly changing as we focus we shift our focus more away from threats in the Middle East to threats in the Indo-Pacific, and that definitely has brought ASEAN as an an operating organization to the forefront because all of the ASEAN member states are focusing on ASEAN centrality, and if you read any sort of U.S. discussion of ASEAN, it is ASEAN centrality is the phrase we like to use. Um, And last week, or last week or the week before, Sometime in the past month, I'm blanking on timelines <laughs> right now. Um, the United States actually hosted all of the leaders of ASEAN except mm-hmm. for President Duterte, and then oh. Myanmar was not invited. Duterte declined officially oh, okay. because they had their election that week. Bomb um, bomb, bon 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 and bon fe- bon the Marcoses bon. are back for better or for worse. You can't get rid of them. Can't get rid you bon bon can't of bon you bon have, really. The Marcoses are like a bad disease. <laughs> you know, like they just keep coming back. And, it's a pretty good example of how these familial dynasties work in Southeast Asia. But they got good
1: taste in shoes. Like, didn't the wife? And work Melda, and Melda really
2: had that shoe collection going. A how queen. many shoes were? was it? A, a queen? queen. Oh, she. It was a very expansive. I don't necessarily know the value, but I know the family embezzled ten billion from the Philippines. Jesus. So <laughs> she had She had access to some hefty. Money to pay for such shoes. Here's my thing. Where
0: do a lot of these... Uh, well, I kind of know. But, like, some of the most interesting, psychologically, or even just corruption-wise, leaders are mostly based in that Southeast Asia region. You had... is the
2: largest-lasting prime minister. And This summit, last this past month, was the first time he has come to the United States on an official trip. Which is interesting, because he's functionally been leading the country since the 80s and this is the first time he's come to the United States so it's interesting to look at that it might have been because he had he was the ASEAN chair and if he if the ASEAN chair doesn't show up to a U.S. ASEAN summit that's a pretty bad sign yeah <laughs> but, um, it's just interesting to to think though like where is Cambodia like Cambodia it's not a U.S. policy priority but it's a Chinese policy priority yes it is
0: which to me is a reflect um it's i don't know it's like when have we stopped being proactive in our geopolitical initiatives when our, nine, when our
1: budget spiraled out of control and we started realizing we can't so next say, i uh, would rather say after 1991 whenever whenever we stopped balancing the budget on an annual basis that's when things became tough to budget for
0: so anytime and after 1910
2: <laughs> no i'm being honest no i'm being
0: serious because in 1910s is when we it's from least the reconstruction area up until 1910s is when we did strict monetary policies we made sure that we balanced our budgets we kept debt under control etc which led to the 1920s once we got into the 1920s because especially after world war one where we had a lot of overproduction of products etc we had nowhere to sell it because the, at least europe was kind of screwed, couldn't buy anything. Then we had, you know, the 1930s, and then that's when Keynes and so on came up with their theories, or if you're an Austrian school of economics kind of person, where you try to say, let the market do, do what it wants. It wasn't until literally the mid, let's say, during the Cold War, so like 50s, 60s, and especially in the 70s, and then once Reaganomics came around, when debt became lucrative as a source of value and currency for trading, is when we really started to get into some deep waters. The same policies that we've been doing since the 1980s is the same thing that Germany was doing after World War One to try to balance their inflation in their currency.
1: And, and the other thing, too, in addition to the budgetary issues, is the U.S. is big; it's got a lot of population, but it can't be ever at once. No, like during the Cold War, what? Like do yeah. we do we have any big actions to free the Romanians? No. No. Why would we try? Because we can't throw all our problems at every. Issue in the world. I use right. the Romanians as an example. You could have used anybody. You know? Right. Like, why are we not helping Ukrainians get free? Because we don't. We don't have the funds, nope. and that's stupid. If you're looking at national security as a means to protect the life, liberty, and property of American citizens, right? Not that's just where we get to Cambodia. Yeah, and, and that's like. <laughs> was, <laughs> was, <laughs> was, was Cambodia, <laughs> is Cambodia more important to protecting the prosperity of Americans than Indonesia? I would say no. No. I would say Indonesia is a higher priority, and the yeah. fact that American policymakers have not made it as much a priority as Hazen thinks it is, and I, he's convinced me it is, is is kind of troubling. That's just that's my final take. So Then
0: my question to you then is, in the realm of like let's say let's say if you are providing consultation or advice to a policymaker um, that's looking at providing a policy to shift American prioritization of Indonesia where would you begin as far as trying to highlight the strategic importance of Indonesia in the region or for American interests
1: or both? Good question.
2: I think a lot of Americans think of their interests in terms of economics with when you think about how the general person thinks about foreign relations it's generally in terms of trade. Mm -hmm. Um, So definitely looking at how the USA can revitalize its position with indonesia relative to trade would probably be how i would approach that which is interesting given the proposed indonesian or indo-pacific economic forum um, which biden has been promoting and the tying of digital trade to the entirety of trade has definitely i think put a limit on how effective IP will be in southeast asia mm-hmm. but Indonesia is one of those countries where I think that will be a bit of an impediment because Indonesia, in terms of digital trade, if you adopt the American model, you cannot really function well with the Chinese or Russian models. So I think that it is somewhere where we are asking Indonesia to be more aligned than it wants to be. Um, So definitely looking at, I think we just need to stop being so focused on we do this in other regions therefore it will work in southeast asia mm-hmm. and being more open to thinking about how we can achieve our desired goals through their desired means and seeing how we can effectively balance those and i think there is a way um, and i think it would have been better if ipef specifically had not tied digital to trades as directly digital could have functionally been its own pillar mm-hmm. um, because all the other pi- pillars are like kind of take them all apart. The like you don't have to join all of them so if in if Indonesia was a trade priority for U- U.S. policymakers and I think if the USTR actually wanted more people to engage with IPEF in Southeast Asia I think that would have been a better way to approach it is just kind of separate digital out and make it its own thing mm-hmm. um because realistically with digital tied in singapore is the only southeast asian country that is in a position right now to set and, like just fully adopt what if is putting down
0: okay buddy any other questions
1: i am happy this is good i've learned more than i thought i would today
0: you pleased, pleased I'm, right? I'm very You're
1: happy. you right yes okay
0: I wasn't going to ask you, Brian. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, we already know
3: Brian's brain is blown here, so. Uh, like, it's our, basically like, oh, man, I knew a few things about Indonesia, but I didn't really know a lot more of the inner workings and other things. So, no, this has been very enlightening to
0: see all of it. Oh, beautiful. Um, we've been talking about Indonesia for like 45 minutes now. So. <laughs> oh, right, right, on, right on time. Um, so, we can...
1: Um, we, yeah, we can segue into the next topic. Hazen, do you want to, are you free to stay or do you have to take off? I do have to take off. Okay. Thank you so much
2: for having me. No. Thank yeah, you. a pleasure.
0: Well, thank you for, for coming. I'm um, from Indonesia. So, um, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> whenever it works, if everyone can come back, just let that
2: one know. Sounds good. So I'm, I'm the
1: deputy director, I guess. Yes, so. you are. Yes. Because ain't going to be me. You are. <laughs> 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 All right, Hazen. All right. Get home safe. Thank care. you very much. My, no problem. So the next, topic, you, the next topic here is revolving around Russian election tampering and their use of cyber warfare to do mm-hmm. that and to pursue their um, national security goals. And, and I wanted to take us briefly on a trip through time because Russia's electoral interference in the U.S. actually goes back to at least the Soviet Union. It goes probably back all the way to the 30s. I mean, yeah, well, I mean, yeah. The one I was tracking is in the '60s. Uh, Russian KGB officials, they tried very hard to release propaganda within uh, certain areas, urban areas, and elsewhere in the United States that said that uh, J. Edgar Hoover was tied to the Ku Klux Klan and he was secretly a Klansman, advancing yeah, a that's some
3: stuff on there.
1: Yeah, and 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 so the Soviet uh, Union has had a long history of, of doing this type of stuff in the United States. So specifically interfering interference with American electoral affairs coming from Russia or Eastern Europe is not like a, an odd phenomenon, but in 2016 that became like a massive deal like that that the possibility that Russia would have interfered with our presidential election just just blew the minds of so many people. I agree.
3: So because with disinformation, that's literally how they do their stuff or influence elections.
1: Go for it, yeah. I can go. On. Go for it, Brian.
3: <laughs> um, when it comes, honestly, when it comes to like Ru- Russian disinformation and um, election tampering, like they've been doing it. like we just said they've been doing it for years. They've been doing it probably since as long before the Cold War even started, um, and a lot. Like, as Wainwright just said at the Hoover thing. Um, sure. I'm trying to think of what exact examples we get into, but when it comes to disinformation, the thing that Russians want to do is they want to, always what I'm used to seeing with disinformation is usually they're either trying to do it for a psychological reason or try to convince people of a different reality. You can look at it with what's happened in Ukraine recently with um, them trying to convince people
1: that you that should not, we should not be involved anywhere in Ukraine. Um, My, I mean, that you, you can talk, yeah, I, I appreciate any more information on Georgia or uh, Ukrainian election interference that Russia's done, uh, but I think I shed a little bit of light yeah, on how Russia conducts its disinformation um, yeah. just by looking at the, the U.S. election. So the Department of Justice, the Senate, House of Representatives, they all released different reports on this topic, and there was a nice little uh, table that I think was released by the Senate. In 2017, and it kind of outlines the, the select Russian disinformation measures that they conducted. So one of which uh, was hack and leak operations. Uh, so Russian uh, trolls or different different um, contractors they legally procured information and shared it via the platforms like WikiLeaks to either demonize certain presidential Did candidates. Look or at the uh, I'm trying to remember the exact. It's like
3: Bukima or something like that. Burkina, Burkina hacks. So there was a hack in twenty in 2020 in a Ukrainian on a Ukrainian th- firm, and mm-hmm. and Russian-linked this groups tried to hack into their ser- servers because they're trying to get a bunch of information specifically on Hunter Biden to try to use it against uh, Joe Biden's campaign. From what we've seen, they didn't find anything. But they would usually do, what they like to do a lot with uh, their hacktivist groups, it could be Fancy Bear, Cozy Bear, which are, to name a few, or Sandworm, they would like to, they'd usually do a, um, they'd do a um, phishing campaign, which is where they send fake emails saying, hey, we need you to log into here because we're resetting the system or whatever. And then once some people get tricked by it, and then it leads to Russian hackers getting access to specific companies, specific government agencies, etc., and then they will hack into the systems, and they would look scour the entire thing for any information they need, either for information collection or to use for a specific information campaign, and as you just said. They would just give it to WikiLeaks, and that's what happened with the uh, DNC hacks. Mm-hmm. They gave they hacked into those emails, and they gave some of them to WikiLeaks to spread. And it some sometimes it's not even just to um, do a specific narrative. Sometimes it's just to. Um, create distrust within
1: the society. Yes. Yeah, that's the big thing, creating distrust. Um, And and Russia, they do this partially by doing something that the Senate calls narrative laundering. So, what the Russians do is they move a narrative from uh, official, like, government origins, like, it's not coming from Russia now, it's coming from uh, the wider web, from a lot of private citizens, these ideas.
3: Well, you're talking about like where the IP address is, or just well, sure. well, it could
1: be that, but like uh, Russia does, they want to get ideas into into social media, but not through state means. They want to they want to say that oh, these are the opinions of private citizens, not the Russian government itself. What well, so and we to can, do that, you can go back to what
3: I just said with Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I said this a bunch of times in the podcast, but I'll summarize it. Like they use YouTube, they use Twitter and Facebook. Mm-hmm. To be able to try to put in certain false narratives, either saying, "Oh, this is from the United States," some random person who lives in Idaho is saying this, and then it can, as it ripples through the internet and the way it does, it's like, "Huh?" So this is what Americans think. Well, maybe I should think about this too. And that's kind of how it works, to be honest, especially with the memes that come out from Russian, from Russian groups. Yeah,
1: the, yeah, the creation of false personas—that's a—that's a major way that Russia conducts electoral interference. Yeah, it's a lot of them,
3: heck, and I'm going to say it now. If you uh, define
1: a few of them, just check on an account to see when it was first created, because some of them are created just a few days before posting. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And the other thing, I mean, listen, Americans don't have the best grammar, but oftentimes you can tell if it's American bad grammar or if it's like a foreigner's bad grammar. Like there, there is a massive difference between like, oh, there's not an apostrophe here, and then whole words are left out of a sentence. I don't that, know that's, if that that's that much of a factor, to be honest. Well, I mean, you can tell like where it's yeah, from. I, I get what
3: you mean. I get what you mean by that, but I think a lot of people would honestly miss that. And I think the thing I'd be more worried about is if it's too perfect.
1: To be honest. Too perfect as in. It's they say we do not do this as opposed to saying we don't do this. Like it just it's it's too grammatically correct. It could
3: be too grammatically correct or
1: something like that. Because even
3: when Dan's been with us, he's talked about a few times a little bit. I think I don't know if he said this in a podcast. I know he said it private with me. it's like if you hear when his experience in Russia, like when you he, if you hear someone a Russian accent who speaks perfect English is originally from Russia, then to run because that most likely be an intelligence agent. So I'd be more afraid to see if was something was too grammatically to correct. But even I'm not sure if they would do that same thing. To be honest.
1: Yeah, no, I, I and I don't know if you want to. I would prefer to go into the, Russia's interferences in the U.S. election because I think that hits home a lot more. And there's still a lot of confusion amongst the average person as to what exactly happened. Well, with that, I'm trying to think. I'll admit, like, I pay more attention
3: to what their disinformation is outside the country than inside, but I already said with the hackings that happened in Ukraine looking for information to either just post online or whatever, like, during, yeah, again, during the Soviet era, there were times in the 80s where they were trying to get rid of Reagan Mm -hmm. through, like, fake fake information. I forgot what exact campaigns they were, but they've been happening forever. The difference between back then and now is... They figured out how to use modern day technology to do the same means. And I think a lot of Americans don't really realize this because ever since, let's be honest, ever since the Soviet Union fell, people have not looked at Russia in the way of like, fully in the way of, of like, oh, they, they're doing everything against us. They kind of, because I say that because think about it. We had the 90s where Cold War ended and it's, I, you could even call it Pax Americana for that entire decade. And then you have 9-11 and the war on terror for the next 10, maybe 20 years, if you want to say. And people like people, recognize that Russia was what it was against us, etc., but not that many people paid attention to Russia and what they were doing. And people even forgot stuff. Like, most people forget what they did during the Cold War.
1: Well, that's fine, but I'm saying right now, over the past decade, that memory's come back. It's like everyone, to... like I mean, just just look at look at Congress, what they're allocating in their budget. So I think about last week, Congress out- allocated another forty billion dollar aid package to Ukraine, and they turned down a forty eight billion dollar aid package to U.S. small businesses. So they are very aware as as, as to the damage. Well, that let's Russia be honest; it's
3: only been happening because of twenty six, the twenty sixteen um, DNC hacks.
1: Yeah, but I mean, and, and that's why I wanted to say, like, there is still a lot of. No one is – that's something – it's like a quotable, right? It's like something everyone wants to put out like, oh, there was, Russia, there was Russian interference in the U.S. elections, but no one knows exactly what went down or they can't allocate it properly. And so like, I, I, I started researching and I went to um, the Department of National Intelligence and they released a nice little fact sheet about 15 pages that had the different judgments of what happened in, in the 2016 federal election and the 2020 elections as well. Um, and DNI, they said that there was no indication that any foreign actor attempted to alter the technical aspects of the voting process in either either presidential election. I.e., there was no like, no one, no Russian agent took ballots away from well, yeah, being counted. The
3: Russians, they're not hacking into like election machines mm-hmm. and then trying to change the count.
0: They initiate what's called social engineering. Um, Online um, as a way to then influence your electoral voting behavior. Mm-hmm. So it's not, oh, I'm going to, uh, I mean, it's completely possible, but like I'm not going to hack into your voting system and potentially leave a digital footprint that you could trace back to me. But what I'm going to do is sustain a long term social engineering, mass media campaign, especially when not only is freedom of speech protected by a constitution, but all major social media platforms are privately owned. Mm-hmm. And therefore, all I have to do is click I agree to your your, um, your terms and conditions and then utilize that platform to expand operations of bots or even a cyber army.
3: But yeah, that's what the troll factory is for in Russia. You can look at... Um, the Internet the Research media. Agency, IRA. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I was blanking on my name. That was but the um, Russian.
1: That was the Russian government troll farm that that really did a lot of this. The work that Samaj just described in the 2016. And election. that's honestly the only way we know right now. There's more around Russia. Yeah, I mean, you, like for instance, I think it was the FBI. Let me try and find the report I have. Yes. So in 2018, a federal grand jury in D.C. they indicted 12 Russian military intelligence agencies for uh, interfering in the 2016 elections. And and so they, it, and these. Interference tactics. It was like from hacking to U.S. computers for U.S. people um, uh, and trying to influence their their thinking, for lack of a better term.
3: Well, sometimes what they would do, literally, and uh, we were de- me and Dan were debating this term some other parts of uh, the past few years, was. Um, like you just said they love the hack they like the hack into americans accounts this mm-hmm. well, is relatively easy for it. me. I mean, it's yeah. not no it's not that hard to hack into someone else's account If you have a technical on you could do it But
0: well, not even just that but it's just on the daily americans that utilize social media they live their entire lives on social media mm-hmm. sounds it's like it's part of the um part of the one of the first stages of you know, potentially picking your targets. You're doing your reconnaissance operations on particular targets. Um, and the, one of the first stages is to literally observe their day-to-day life. Figure out what it is that they do, what it is that they search, etc. Um, which is easy nowadays dealing with big daddy... Big, big daddy, wow. Big, <laughs> big <don't>, data <laughs> algorithms. I know where your mind's at. Right, <laughs> thank you. Big data <laughs> algorithms um, where, you know, I bet you after we do this podcast and we and I upload it, I'll probably get a suggestions from Google we're talking about. Have you looked at this book yep. for um, ethical hacking? So it's like
1: private companies do this. They do it all the time. St- uh, states do this. We're in the
0: point. We're we're at a point in time where data is worth more than gold. Worth more than oil. Right now, worth more than natural gas. That's how
3: a lot of companies are getting their money. Is literally mm-hmm. looking at people's search histories. Literally, and they, go, oh, and God, they sell it it like this. this, and then they sell it to another company.
0: Unfortunately, is that those particular companies that they sell it to, um, or even dealing with um, how even the internet operates. It's very easy. Um, mm-hmm to not only get somebody's information but also to figure out their digital footprint what they like what they don't like and then from there you mold your strategy to uh get their uh you know to to change or influence their their behaviors that's what russia did uh, on both sides so it wasn't just the notions of um just particularly uh targeting let's say the right wing in in america um Politics, but they did it on both sides even to the points where they would put fake political events on the same day At the same time at the same location for both Republicans and Democrats Hoping that it will either cause some sort of fight or instability um,
3: And that goes and, to sorry to interrupt uh-huh. but I actually need to and that goes to one of the main aspects of what Russian disinformation does it's supposed to destabilize a population to the point that they're not able to function properly, resist, and to the point that it allows for Russia
1: to usurp them eventually. So, I mean, I'm glad... I think we can all agree, it's pretty obvious that it's easy to interfere with the country's electoral process. I I found it interesting looking at the 2016 and 2020 U.S. presidential election, seeing who was doing it, Mm -hmm. and then to what end. So in 2016... Russia interfered, I mean, everyone from the Senate to the average on the street, we all agree that Russia interfered in the 2016 elections, but the candidates they supported or, or wanted to win, it appears to be that they wanted Bernie Sanders to win, or they wanted Donald Trump to win. They did not want Hillary Clinton to win or anyone else. They wanted the most, in my view,
3: I and, don't even know who, if I would exactly want to say they were really supportive of anyone. To be honest,
1: well, they they definitely didn't want Hillary Clinton. That that much is clear. No, Jeffrey Rosen. I can agree with that. They didn't want Clinton.
3: They didn't want Hillary to win. But I think a lot of times they don't. They don't really care who wins as long as they're able to get their perceived objectives. In their well, well, I mean,
1: in a, in, a, in a constitutional republic like ours, a lot of that hinges on the election. Who's going to be making foreign policy for the next... But especially years? for,
3: no, especially for, if you choose, method, yeah. if you choose the most radical two areas, which in the 2016 election, it seemed like it was Trump for the for the right, and then it seemed like Bernie Sanders for the left, you're going to get one side to go crazy and react to it, and we kind of, we saw that after Trump was elected,
0: we saw... Literally, on the day, he did his, his oath. Um, but I mean, it's the same old tactic that we've seen in the fifties where Soviet uh, disinformation tried to initiate a race war,
3: Mm -hmm.
0: um, where they supported, they provided support, not just of the black Panther party, but also some instances of disinformation with the Ku Klux Klan, um, hoping that by initiating a race war, the United States would be too unstable internally, uh, to prohibit or contain. Uh, the Soviet Union same way how they doctored, doctored up the conspiracy theory that it was the government that assassinated JFK mm-hmm. um, and then proceeded to write a book about it literally a month after JFK was killed um, to push this notion that oh it was the government that essentially did an inside coup against JFK uh, for his policies or simply because that he was Catholic and at that point you know being a Catholic running the president and winning was no bueno It's still no bueno bueno in some cases. In some parts of America, it's still no bueno. Um, But it's it's just interesting to see that the strategy and the end goal of these operations have not changed. It's just the means to which they are conducted have changed. And in some cases have become much more sophisticated um, or even openly expansive and it's, what I mean by openly, part
3: of, I, I'm sorry no. I
0: to end your finger. what I mean by openly expansive is that because now with globalization etc compared to the Cold War Russia can't technically contain the scope for which their propaganda may bounce back against Russians so what I mean mm-hmm. by that is that for example um, let's say that did a disinformation campaign in Italy okay um about corruption well at the same time italy could then turn around or, or even a private uh, individual could turn around and do a, a disinformation campaign against the russian elites and granted a bulk of that could probably be stomped out by state uh, sanctioned television and, and uh, media industries in russia however a lot of russians utilize private companies for social media like twitter instagram tiktok etc so, they too will then be on the receiving end of some sort of disinformation campaign. Now, we see that in, right now with the Ukrainian war. There's a lot of disinformation, even misinformation, uh, operations intentional and unintentional yeah, was going it,
1: on. The Shark of Kiev, the Ghost of Kiev? The oh, Ghost of yeah. Kiev, yeah,
0: Snake Island, um, and there's a few others um, that contributed to information based warfare, not just hacking. That we're talking about now but just overall where the soviet union was literally able to put a not a physical iron curtain but a, an iron a curtain essentially on what was allowed and to be consumed by the russian populace and what was able to be pushed out there's a much greater difficulty now um, to do that uh, and that's what we're kind of saying when it comes to these types of campaigns where you can't you can't regulate the scope now that the 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 end result that you're looking to achieve is going to be that way and
3: with what everything you just said like honestly all of it is the true essence of what we call today russian hybrid warfare it's the same strategies that have been used by the russians for decades and not in in fact in some ways you could say centuries Mm -hmm. Because uh, I'm not gonna go into my random spiel about the Mongols again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I saw that look. Every every freaking. Every day. Hey, it's either I say it and then one of you complains to me, or I don't. Yeah, so. go ahead. Just say you're right problem.
0: Go ahead. No, <laughs> no, no. No. Um, uh,
3: no, but in all seriousness, um, no. With this, and honestly, with hybrid warfare, Russia's hybrid warfare is literally Russia's disinformation campaigns, Russian hacking. And it's all the same stuff they used to do back then, just now it's, as Samaj said, it's with new technical means. And they have talked, the Russians have talked about this since the 90s. They have had articles on this since the 90s of wanting to do stuff like this. And they've been able to show it, I think, to the best availability in Ukraine. And now they figured out how to export even farther to the U.S. with the 2016 election and 2020 election.
1: Yeah, but I would argue, though, that, I mean, the 20... 20 presidential election, I could say that Russian disinformation measures are not that great compared to other countries. Like, again, going back to that ODNI report that was released in 2021, so Russia, obviously their disinformation in the election was geared towards President Trump. They wanted him to win. Iran, China, Hezbollah, Cuba, and almost every other country, their disinformation was geared towards supporting President Biden. Or convincing the American public that he should win. Mm-hmm. And Joe Biden is our president. So you could argue off of that that Russian disinformation and cyber warfare, at least in terms of influencing elections, is not, or never was, uh, is influential in, in American policy making as people
3: think. I wonder what we're figuring out now. Honestly, one thing we might need to look into is the war in Ukraine right now, because...
1: I'm not, I don't know if this is working everywhere. I, it's that, not working well, that's class, something about but, Ukraine. Like, who believes Russian disinformation about Ukraine? Who believes it? Nobody. Nobody in the U.S., at least. American policymakers don't believe it. And most people here, they believe Ukrainian disinformation more than they believe Russian disinformation. Yeah, you know, my
3: question, though, is, it's definitely true that no one's paying attention to Russian disinformation right now if they're talking about Ukraine, because we saw Russia literally invade when they said they weren't. My question, though, is... For the countries that are outside of Europe and outside the United States and Canada, what's going on there? Because honestly, we don't know, and most of those countries don't even have sanctions on.
1: Well, India wants India wants economic ties. We know this. They want their they want their weapons, so they don't care what they the heck's coming out of Indonesia, for instance, like Indonesia does not care about what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. I mean, I wish Hazen were still here to talk about Hazen Williams, but they don't care. They they want Russia to go to the G twenty side. And they'll invite Zelensky, but, like, that's that's just, like, a token measure for the U.S. to, like, keep them happy. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. really don't care.
0: I think the other thing we also have to look at when we talk about now in election interferences, um, as we have midterms coming up, um, the notion of soaring food prices do, uh, due to the Russian-Ukrainian war. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, soaring gas prices.
0: And soaring gas prices as well. And I can see that there could potentially become politicians or even uh, voting populaces where they may say, you know, try to push, uh, let's say, concessions to end this war. And the reason why I say that is because I've seen over this past few days, um, I forget which state, it's out Midwest where farmers were asked about gas prices. Mm -hmm. And they were like, y'all are too worried about gas prices when the one thing y'all should be worried about are food prices. Mm -hmm. When you look through history, a lot of the major historical internal conflicts or even sources of instability all stem from massive fluctuations in food prices. Or even in the notions of um, either food prices, or food taxes, etc., um, that raises the prices of food and basic products
2: mm-hmm.
0: to the point of internal strife. And what I see with Russia uh, under Putin was able to increase agricultural um, export to them being an exporter. Ukraine being substantially exactly. Mm-hmm. You have two major agricultural nations um, that are exporters of extensive amount of agricultural goods at war with each other. Mm-hmm. They both also um, are connected in some ways uh, to global energy. Uh, what I see potentially, whether this is going to be disinformation or even um, the the IRA operations, is literally, literally, I'd say, put prioritization on compounding. The outcomes or the results of those two crucial things that are impacting millions of Americans. Um, there was a paper that went out that's like, you know, we're not going to be really pissed until our food price on a monthly basis is $1,000. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, for a lot of people, unfortunately, it's getting to that price.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so, okay. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. So
1: well, I, I will say this before we move on too much about the food pricing problem. But I've seen that being
0: a source for in, some potential disinformation. Um, either, either by the Russians or even by uh, Russian sympathetic uh, uh, individuals here in the nation to prompt or thwart uh, political changes that may prompt, let's say, you know, America, uh, this is just hypothetical, what if situation, um, wanting to settle down for some sort of a concession to end this war so that prices can be adjusted and then Russia will be able to get what they want which is to literally annex the current areas that they have of Ukraine.
3: I wouldn't say, though, as much as I get what you mean the food pricing, I would say that's a double-edged sword for Russia because... Well, of course, it's now, a double-edged sword. Well, even now, right now, they I'm seeing for the first time since videos from the 90s food lines outside markets in Russia. No,
0: I, I absolutely agree, but there's a difference between a food, a food shortage in Russia and a food shortage in the United States who is able to, especially when it comes to inflation or any type of major economic um, concern, is able to write it off either to Europe or to Asia. Russia can't do that. When any time that America goes through a notion of inflations, it's, I, one side of the world feels it. And that's when the United States is able to change its attention to the other part of the world so that it can readjust itself regarding inflation. Both sides of the world are going through serious uh, spikes of inflation on type of food uh, food prices, baby formula shortages, mm-hmm. um, and increasing uh, oil prices. This is a situation that's perfect for misinformation or disinformation campaigns to thwart, or prolong or expand political instability that we may be going through right now as a nation.
1: Yeah, no, and, and that's possible. And before we go back to this, to this information, I want to talk about ways that, the U.S. can easily take care of the yeah, problem. thing. So obviously there's a supply and demand issue. The demand is high. supply is jammed up throughout the world for food and other things. In America, we pay farmers not to produce the food that they could. They have the technology, means, and capacity to produce more, at least triple the amount of food they do now. And we subsidize them not to. I wonder what would happen if U.S. policymakers temporarily lifted those subsidies and allowed farmers to produce and sell to, say, Lebanon or countries in Africa, or even, or even in in, in Eastern Asia. I mean, a lot of, uh, in say, for example, in Washington State, apple production is big in Korea, in Japan, and even China. Imagine what, how much money they could make and how much food they could supply, not just to the world, but to America, if we took those subsidies off yep. temporarily. So that's an easy fix and we don't have to rely on Ukraine or Russia or anyone else to produce for us. They're, they're too busy fighting each other to reap back economic benefits. So that's a way we could do it, I'm not saying that will happen. In terms of combating future election influence and disinformation campaigns in the US from outside sources, The Senate released a report on... Let me see when they released this thing. I believe it was in 2018. It was a report of the Select Committee on Intelligence in the U.S. Senate. And it was I think volume 2 of that report. And around page 81, the report, it it encapsulated ways that U.S. policymakers could combat future election interference. The first one is an educated citizenry. Basically, the report advocated that there be a public initiative propelled by federal funding um, and led in large part by state and local uh, education institutions, as well as administered overall by the Department of Homeland Security, that would build media literacy at an early age. So, basically, familiarize people with what you talked about, Brian like, well, what, what, what would a bot look like? How would a bot tweet? So that was the initial thing they advocated, an educated citizenry through these different initiatives. However, the reports on the next page, the Senate does not have any faith in this happening because the next page of the report was like, oh, you know what we actually really need? We need a disinformation governance board. Yeah. So basically basically what, what it would be is like the disinformation governance board for people who aren't aware. It's something that a lot of people have been calling the Ministry of Truth. It's it's basically a, a, a potential advisory board administered by DHS um, that would protect national security by disseminating guidance on how to. Um, to be honest, come, come I'm going to I'm gonna say this now. Yeah. People could disagree with me or whatever. Yeah.
3: I don't think anything involving Congress or Senate should be involved in anything involving countermeasures against disinformation.
1: You're not wrong. I'm just saying what's been advocated.
3: No, I, I know. I'm just I'm just kind of just saying my opinion on this. Yeah. Is, You, I think this is more of a thing of where you need to actually have the NSC talk about more, or even just the president talk about more than Congress.
1: That's fine. I mean, but again, we got to think. Well, if Congress is allocating the budget, that's true, and they hold the power of the purse, Mm -hmm. and they're going to expand certain parts of the NSC, whether it be DHS or the Department of whatever. They're going to try to keep themselves
3: involved no matter what. They have that
1: power. They have that power. But, but these are the two things they advocate for. Um, educating the citizenry on a local and state level, which I don't really have much faith in, because the, the option they really kind of advanced was the disinformation governance board. I think it's around page 82 of that report. Mm-hmm. And basically, this, this governance board would really, it would be able to liaison with private companies and incentivize them to... Uh, Make sure that platforms that are stating unpopular opinions are not allowed to do so anymore.
3: There's something I do want to bring up at kind of those go level. Well. We did mm-hmm. discuss this a few days ago. Mm-hmm. That recent ad for the uh, psyops, <laughs>
1: And I told you why that came out, right? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stay here, but yes, that was that was an acid trip if I've ever seen one. I'm <laughs> saying. Go not ahead. A, what was your Not an
0: acid trip.
1: Sorry, shrooms, because that doesn't show up in the military. Drug test. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Y'all heard it from me. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Y'all are guilty of it. We know you are. Go ahead. What was, what was, your, what was your opinion on the ad? No, so for the... And just explain it to yeah, me. Yeah, that's what I was going to do. So for those who
3: don't know, the US um, USOCAR Special Operations Command, recently put out an ad for a, looking for people, a recruitment ad looking for people for its PSYOP division or Psychological Operations Division. Mm-hmm. And you, for a lot of people who maybe know anything about the military, that's kind of odd because usually they want to be a little bit quiet about it. But when you mm-hmm. look at the ad, as Wainwright and uh, Samaj kind of just point out, it was such a mind trip yeah. that you're, you have to literally re- watch this thing like three to four times to really understand what they're trying to say. Mm-hmm. But no, like the thing that shows there is if you can use – like, Russian disinformation, so it is psychological warfare in the end. And I feel like with that, like the, it is, pop, you can do the same thing against Russia. It's going to be hard because Russia is probably trying to look for these things. But you could still do it. Mm-hmm. And I think my thing with uh, seeing that ad is I think the army is starting to realize that not just for Russia, but also for China. Mm-hmm. And trying to figure out how to affect them psychologically using psychological warfare, which is something I am a huge advocate for doing similar stuff, the stuff we did during Reagan's administration against China, both China and Russia, especially Russia for this conversation.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, but like I think Samaj mentioned earlier about conducting these disinformation campaigns in other countries, it will come back to bite you in weird ways. So in in 1948, the CIA, after they got authorization from Congress of the National Security Act, they decided to ensure that the Italian general elections went their way, as in the Christian Democrats won and the communists did not. And so they they interfered heavily, mm-hmm. we'll just be politically correct about it, they interfered heavily in the outcome of that election, and Italians still have not forgotten it. Right. If you, if you want to bring, you can bring one on. Like, they'll, they'll probably still remember Do you it. know what the one way they did it, though?
3: I'm sorry? One of the main ways for how they are able to influence that election was not really through too much of, excluding funding to Christian Democrats. Mm-hmm. They encourage Italian immigrants that were already in the United States to mail their relatives mm-hmm. in Italy so and to tell them about stuff that they have seen based on news or whatever to do it. Mm-hmm. And that I even then, like I can understand maybe that's that's considered. Some people could interpret it as bad, but in my view, I don't see it as that bad compared to what other things we could have done.
1: Well, I'm just saying. Imagine if it was another country doing that to us. Imagine everyone in Ukraine mailed their relatives and said, "Look, you need to drop the 82nd Airborne into Ukraine right now." They're probably doing it now. Let's be honest. Well, please, but but <laughs> you <laughs> see the danger of that. Like, boy. Man, that's if you're talking about factionalism, that's that's yeah. the textbook version of factionalism that the founding fathers in America didn't want. I don't think any prudent policymaker would want to, to go on in their country. You know? I agree. Ask the polls, you know, the Lithuania, how that how that how factionalism ended up for them. You know, it's not great. But again, I mean, that's I think we've beaten that topic to get to death. Disinformation is difficult, and it sucks, and it's illegal, and it's practiced by everyone on the planet.
0: Basically, so. Because <laughs> like literally, just got a um, a Yahoo email notification from Amazon for like book suggestions for AI. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're listening on, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm telling ta- everybody does it. That's that's. Me, I'm probably man. gonna buy it. You know. <laughs> I know, you, I know you. you buy
0: every book. Though. I have two hundred books on my Kindle.
1: He's a bibliophile. I am. It's a problem. There's another two hundred. Probably
0: <laughs> upstairs, and I have some books in my closet too. Yeah. It's he's, got, he's got the
1: Library of Alexandria in his room. It's great.
0: Hey, hey, either Library of Alexandria or the Library of Baghdad before the Mongols Ooh. burned it down. Ooh, <laughs> we brought the Mongols. The Swiss hey, hey, I'm just saying.
1: So, I mean, yeah, the last thing I really had, unless you guys want to talk about more about election interference. or No? Okay, well, I guess we'll move on to the last topic. So to what if, and let me see if I can find it so I get it right. What if the People's Republic of China invaded Taiwan? It's a broad question and it's, it's really just like a thought exercise and so and, and the reason I think you guys want to talk about it is there was audio leaked I think last week or two weeks ago about Chinese a Chinese military meeting discussing plans to invade Taiwan yeah and I, and I will say this before we go any further the DoD has plans to invade Taiwan you know why because the DI, the DoD, Every military establishment that's worth its salt has plans to invade or occupy or retain something.
3: That's because they, they got to think
1: of everything. That's true. So I mean, we can't we can't take this for gospel saying, oh, China is going to invade Taiwan. They might have just been planning it. Like what if? Well, right. Plus, we well, I'm
3: not it. gonna lie. That little audio thing that we saw, I saw a few things which seemed like it was a not really a military meeting, but mm-hmm. more like a political rounding up of the troops on um, uh, anything. I mean, because it was only senior officials from that local CCP branch.
0: But look at the location of Guangdong.
1: I already know where it is. It was in Guangdong This way this audio was reported. But but, but again, like it, it begs the question, they're asking the question, we're asking it too, oh, yeah. what, what would we as in the United States do if the People's Republic of China invaded Taiwan?
0: But well, yeah, Before we get into that, yeah, I just want to, because I've brought up the the news article. Shout out to Atlas News um, and their uh, conglomerate, uh, (laughs) Tesseran News, and there's another one. Um, They're very heavy in open source intelligence. Um, But they, according to their findings, there were seven um, pretty high ranking um, PLA. Uh, as well as uh, CCP mm-hmm. figures, one of them being the commander of the Guangdong military region, um, as well as a member of the Standing Committee of the Guangdong Provincial Party Committee and political commissar of the provincial. These titles, Jesus, wrong, I, I'm with you. Um, yeah, make more fancy somehow. They, uh, somehow, this this one person has uh, what is it? Uh, Provincial com- political commissar in his title three times. Like, come on, now. Maybe they're making
3: up titles at
0: this point. At <laughs> this point, I mean, it, but nothing can be edamindaras. I mean, oh, oh my King of god! King of Scotland. I don't want to think about it. Yeah, emperor of, the, of all the beasts on the land and of the sea. Like, what? What? Where <laughs> yeah. are you? That man was so, doing ciphers. Hey, we'll he, really <laughs> he was. He was a man of the times. I'm telling you. Um, but they broke it down, thankfully, into like three different bullet points that they talked about overall in the entirety of that uh, the audio file. So the first one was optimizing a military-civilian joint mobilization command and control system which seizes upon the massive civilian fishery fleet. Um, Guangdong province was apparently ordered to supply 1,358 units of various types um, with a total of 140,000 personnel, 953 ships, so that's like the fishery, uh, small boats and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, Uh, 1,653 unmanned aircraft, 20 airport terminals, 6 shipyards, 14 emergency mobilization centers, grain and oil depots, hospital blood bank, etc., of which a majority would be supplied from civilian industries, especially the ships. Currently, the PLA, um, The the plan with People's Liberation Army Navy is comprised of 350 vessels. Um, The meeting focused on equipping civilian uh, vessels with weapons, communications, equipment, and folding them into the general military system. The meeting also called for 64 10,000 ton Roro ships, Mm -hmm. 38 aircraft, 588 trains, and 19 civil facilities such as airport docks. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Two. Establishing wartime procedures, especially for mobilization, Um, according to particular analysis, China planned on applying lessons learned from the civilian-military cooperation with regards to COVID-19 lockdowns and regulations towards military mobilization. So this next part is from the video where they say that they're going to convert the experience and practice of the prevention and control of the new corona epidemic in previous years. So remember, they had an outbreak in 2002, 2003, mm-hmm. um, in previous years into measures of uh, for social prevention and control during the wartime. Um, so basically what that means is that they're going to utilize what they learned from the first outbreak and this outbreak from and the civilian experience in transition, that logistical experience, to the military, um, especially when it comes to wartime production, to ensure that the people's production and life are orderly, the overall social situation is stable, and to create a favorable environment conditions for a strategic victory. Point three, uh, preparing for wartime command and control between the various fleets and branches. And this is the quote, it is necessary to coordinate the two directions of the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea, the two areas of maritime and land protection, the two traditional and new forces, the two kinds of resources in the province and overseas, and the focus on cohesive resources to ensure the direction of the Taiwan Strait. End quote. Uh, with regards to the Taiwan Strait, the military composition of the baiting force will probably have to rely on the eastern theater and the southern theater. These two theaters comprise a majority of the naval tonnage of the People's Liberation Army Navy, also known as Plan, which will not only execute the invasion, um, but also screen both sides of the strait from American and Japanese vessels if they attempted to interdict. Chinese air bases and missile bases in the eastern theater uh, Tha- are capable of reaching Taiwan with aircraft and land based uh, surface to surface missiles, but the strait will have to be protected by naval assets. This would require immense coordination between both those particular figures As for the South China Sea, which will hypothetically be vulnerable um, during an assault on Taiwan, the People's Liberation Army Rocket Force has gone to great lengths to place access area denial weapons in the Paracel and Spratly Islands. So with all of that said, back in March, Fox News, I don't watch main media news is also following my lab, that a whistleblower um, basically stated that China was eyeing potential invasions of Taiwan in the fall. Now, if that's true, we don't know because we know that China is eyeing the responses to Russia in regards to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also alluded in the previous episodes that one of the reasons potentially China's not getting involved in the Ukraine is because Ukraine is a major weapons exporter, or at least partner, to China. Um, however... With this, fo- with this audio leak, um, I think now we can kind of move on, move into the the what if scenario. And then that we know that if a Taiwan invasion were to happen, it would be the Southern Theater and the Eastern Theater pre- uh, predominantly operate uh, doing the, the operations. Mm-hmm. So, um, open it up to both of y'all
1: on your what if scenarios. I will say that. The Rand Corporation and how to say this, um, unpopular thinkers within, say, like the Department of the Navy, they have advocated to promoting a guerrilla insurgency in Taiwan, and I think that this is a problematic because primarily to have an insurgency, you need to have an armed and reasonably trained population to do that and Taiwan's biggest problem is almost no one on that island knows how to use arms or drills daily with them or can even own them in their private lives. So right now in Taiwan I think only the indigenous groups there can own firearms legally and those are like 22 smoothbore musket type deals for, for hunting hogs. They're, they're not built like you know they don't have AK- style weapons in their houses like in Iraq or in America, <laughs> you know. So I, I don't know um, if this idea of funding a guerrilla insurgency would bear any fruit if Taiwan were invaded. Um, but my, my, my what-if scenario does kind of fall along that line, but for a guerrilla insurgency to be successful in Taiwan, we would need to— ensure that the Taiwanese population had guns available and would be willing to use them in the in the in the event of a PLA occupation. So that's where like you know the Defense Security Cooperation Agency comes in. They need to be able to ship small arms to Taiwan. Congress needs to approve that and we need to make sure that they are distributed and not just hoarded in federal armories. But how do you make sure that those firearms are distributed, right? It's it's difficult to do. You know, mm, especially yes. especially if you want Mm-hmm.
0: That's especially especially with um, a percentage of the Taiwanese population, uh, some of them are pro-mainland. Uh, yeah. So you don't you you want to make sure that if you are going to disperse weapons and provide training, as mm-hmm. uh, like you you just alluded to, to you got really be careful about who you're giving these weapons to. Because mm-hmm. um, in the moment, the last thing you want is to be training. Let's say five villages, and out of those five villages, three of them um,
1: are pro mainland china and if you want to if you want to make the federal government powerful and deter china the obvious the obvious solution is to incentivize them to adopt a nuclear capability that's 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 I'm serious if you want to stop someone from invading you threaten you give them nuclear missiles
0: well, I think that also comes with what Japan, um, with, the whole thing with Abe, where he was like, you know, now we have to really consider the the, the development of, you know, nuclear weapons. Um, South Korea and Japan both have the infrastructure to proceed um, with um, developing nuclear weapons. Um, so it's, it's tricky when we're talking about um, Taiwan, where. With its position, as we just talked about, alluded to the type of civilian military mindset China is looking at this with, where it may not, the vast majority of the operations, if it were to happen, probably won't be fully based on large uh, uh, combat ships and so on and so forth. They said those are intended to isolate the street. Mm -hmm. The main, let's say, troop movement will probably be those smaller civilian vessels, um, as well as or even uh, APCs that you can drop in um, airborne it, that could be it after um, ballistic missile saturations of Taiwanese um, anti-air defense systems and or even hacking into Taiwanese information based security systems to um, paralyze them for a significant amount of time to establish a strategic space that's completely possible um, which, coming I mean, as we talked about in a different episode To allude to why China could, is adamant On implementing um, digital security uh, measures With their partnerships with uh, the Solomon Islands If I'm able to put in, quote-unquote, police CCTVs um, Or help you establish um, an overarching security measure uh, Within the digital space But I'm the one that built it and therefore, I can implement backdoor channels, etc., to get in to get any information, etc., that I need, or shut it down mm-hmm. if things uh, go to the worst. The same thing could be said or could be done in Taiwan, um, but at a much larger scale. But how could the, how can the United States potentially combat that aspect if China is managing to establish this, their own strategic space? With any area access denial frameworks, um, as from the Taiwanese Strait down to the South China Sea, are we going to, for example, risk an entire carrier group into an open battlefield? No,
1: no. Well, and that's and why, we shouldn't. Yeah, and that's why allowing Taiwan to provide for their own defense is important. If you're serious about it and you don't want to fight this war, you want to stop it before it starts, right? Kind of like Sun Tzu. So, how? What's a way to do that? Well, is a nuclear power gonna attack another nuclear power? It's possible. It's possible. But is it likely?
0: Nah. And that's why we keep on looking at Pakistan and India. Yeah. Like many times they keep on fighting each other with their skirmishes, but they never utilize their
1: nuclear weapons. Brian, what do you got? you been sitting over there with sending like He's nations. looking at the Taiwan straight. <laughs> oh, yes? What do you got, Brian? What's your what if? Um
3: I don't know if I exactly, well, I guess my what-if is how the population will react. Mm -hmm. Because I guess some people may think, oh, maybe they'll do the same thing that Ukraine did, where people didn't believe the invasion would come from Russia, and when it did, they all went to the recruiting center. That's true, but compared to um, Mm -hmm. Ukraine, where you had highs of the 40% margin in the lowest areas, saying that they would fight the Russians. I've seen more things where it's like twenty percent in Taiwan, and I think that's partially just because they don't believe it's going to happen. But I wonder truly how many people, if a if an invasion happened, how many people would truly try to fight against China? Mm-hmm. And as you just alluded, like we would have, if you want to make a good enough growth force, you have to. You're going to have to train them on how to do it, and how much time would we have before we actually act seriously on, okay, we need to do something now.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, that also then reminds me of, I was reading the article from Breaking Defense, who is a great defense-related publication, and a former top-ranking uh, South Korean military official, um, he even stated that in the advent, that he he's not confident in the current state of the South Korean um, fighting capabilities mm-hmm. um, and that if he could have his way, it would take South Korea five years at least to get to a, a position to where if war were to happen with North Korea, he would be confident that South Korea could potentially win. So, But then also, he also stated that one of the reasons is social constructs. Um, he looked at it as there are potentially some components and, um, whether that's the Confucianism, um, in Korea or even Confucianism influences Far East Asia, where it has bled into, um, their military structures. when it comes to their positions with hierarchy, um, not having a senior, um, what do you call it, um, Senior commander or... Not necessarily a senior commander, but uh, a senior NCO uh, structure where they could provide additional um, advice, advisory, um, to better manage and develop better strategies when it comes to South Korea. Same situation could apply really to China. Um, China's structure is riddled with corruption. Um, In addition to not just corruption, um, it's also... um, Structured to be based around the the elites of the party, um, China is. China itself does not have an armed forces. The Communist Party does. Yeah. Um. So the allegiance of the of the military is not necessarily to protect the livelihood of the Chinese people. Is to protect the, the bless you the Communist Party exactly. and their,
3: yeah. their control rule exactly.
0: So we've seen multiple times, um, even since Mao, um, that. If the notion came down to having to exert force to achieve compliance by the Chinese people, no matter their their uh, their view on a particular conflict, CCP has no problem turning rifles on their own on their own people, um, especially if it comes down to something like enduring a campaign into Taiwan. Um, but what we've also learned throughout history is that there's been cases where. Some of the most advanced military forces were defeated by some of the less inclined, uh, far inferior in capabilities. Afghanistan. Um, (coughs) Um, The
3: thing I'm curious about too is with Taiwan, mm -hmm. like, Taiwan probably has equipment that is comparable to that. Oh, yeah, they do. In some
0: cases, superior. Yeah, they do, especially in their uh, anti ship missiles. Um, but even now, Taiwan's growing security arrangements and partnerships with Japan is something that should be crucial as well.
3: That's um, another thing that I'm curious about because recently Japan has been trying to create closer defense ties with Taiwan. Because even in their, even Japan's white paper for 2021 or 2022, they said actually yeah 2022 they said that now they consider Taiwan as a crucial importance to Japanese national security, and they are also and they would also. To defend
0: Taiwan in the case of invasion. I mean, Japan's highest ranking commander was just at NATO headquarters for the first time. So it's like this is a seriously changing uh, geostrategic position um, when it comes to Taiwan, um, to the fact where Japan is taking very seriously um, reconsideration of their naval restructuring. Modernization programs. He has a defense force, but they're not slick. They're making a transitioning helicopter carriers for yeah. miniature aircraft carriers for the F-35s. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I think in that what if scenario, the United States would have to get comfortable with being in a support role um, instead of being front row. Uh, we're talking about a war that if it were to occur especially now with this new attitude with Japan uh, or even that with Australia that the United States will have to be in a position of um, supporting or sustaining as you like to say, win, right? Uh, <laughs> the war efforts of our regional partners in the Asia Pacific um, against China so whether that's providing intelligence the same ways that we've been doing in Ukraine, whether that's doing covert operations um, We may deploy uh, personnel, probably, Marine Corps. um, And in that instance, it's like, well, what type of end result would we uh, accept? Because a war is not just going to be in the Taiwan Strait. Mm -hmm. It's going to be in the South China Sea. Um, It may even be in the Yellow Sea. It may be in the Sea of Japan. If uh, China get what they want as far as Solomon Islands um, and Papua New Guinea... Um, as well as the quote-unquote logistical facilities in Africa. Um, where else could this particular war spill into? Greece, uh, with port with the Chinese port there. Um, Djibouti, and if it happens in Sri Lanka, and if it happens in Djibouti, then you have the Red Sea and Bab el Mandam Strait, which is one of the most Strategic and lucrative trading straits in the world, the Malacca Strait. Mm-hmm. Um, we go back to Indonesia for that one, <laughs> right? We go back to Indonesia for that one, um, as well as uh, even maybe potentially in the Middle East. So, uh, what would that mean for Iran? In Iran has a four hundred billion dollar deal with China. What does that mean for Pakistan? Pakistan is in the middle of China and in, in America as far as their um, financial assets and interests. What does that mean for Central Asia? Um, That then prompts the question of Russia and China. Uh, The Arctic. China declares itself as an Arctic nation somehow. (laughs) Uh, What does that even mean for space? Um, China has uh, anti-satellite missiles that work. Um, What does that mean for their own navigation system? China, technically, is getting to a point where they do not depend on the GPS. So if we do cut them off, there's, they expect to grow their satellite structure to 33, 35 satellites, which would then be the largest in the world. Um, so there's a lot of other factors where it's not just going to be a war based in the Chi- in the Taiwan Strait. It's going to be a war that is all-encompassing and all geostrategic strategic. And locations. how would it
3: affect the world economy? Because as much as Russia put in a huge blow, China at war, especially Taiwan, who has... All more close enough, or at least more than ninety percent of the world's, man, like ship production, like yep. electronic chip or whatever. Yep. That's gonna affect the economy so
0: much that we're gonna see like going back to the Stone Ages. Yeah, essentially. I'm fine with that, honestly. No bills.
2: Can you imagine that? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sounds like on earth to me. No income tax. Shit. No, t-
1: like what?
0: But I don't know how to farm. I'm moving in. it. You want to grow me? Are. I can grow
1: <laughs> me horticulture. We're here for you.
0: That that that's the only thing. I just know how to do strategic planning and taking over Walmart. That's so, it. So, guess when the
1: world apocalypse starts,
3: we'll just go back to the planet. Okay, we take over the nearest Walmart, and then we'll slowly expand
1: from there. They all I'm
0: telling. You, they have underground tunnels. You're not gonna. all
1: you're wrong. It's not about Walmart. It's, it's not, not. About Costco. Don't forget the target. No, that's like, we're <laughs> going to we yeah. have to negotiate with Costco. You, you want to get more people on your side, go after Target.
0: Target is what I call Target. Well,
1: yeah. uh, they got horrible, like, physical security because Brian Revis was working there. To like, oh you know, I, know I know all, all the ins and outs. I can get you in and out. easily. <laughs> <like>, no,
0: nobody's <laughs> thinking about at the end of civilization. Oh, let's go to take over Target. Like, yeah. you nope.
1: Know, that's how like you take over Kmart.
3: Like, what the Wait, is who that? Cares? Yeah, who cares? Who yeah. cares? It's fucking paid hey, yeah, no, hey, they, they have, have there. food there too. Just food you go to. Expensive <laughs> food. Hey, just think that. Hey, still, it's food.
1: I want to go in there for Tupperware. That's about it. <laughs> anyway, well, I guess. I, <laughs> getting this back on track, you know. Um, I, yeah, this what if, it's interesting. It's a thought experiment. But in the end, I think the only way that this would end up well is if. Taiwan provided for its own defense. And by its own defense, I, I meant coming to its own and become a nuclear power, and in which case it would deter any military intrusion by China or anyone else. You be think it. Taiwan would actually be
3: able to do that? Because they have to, They're. I'm pretty sure they have a pretty good technological level to be able to... New,
1: nuclear capability, that that's older than the color TV. Like You see what I'm I saying? Know, like, I the, the ability to do this has been around for a while. Well, I mean, if North Korea... Can figure it out. I want be... I mean, would they be able to do it as fast as South Korea or Japan? No, well, but South, they would no, have. Well, they South would South South. have help too. Like wait, remember, wait. Uh, Japan, where would they get all their nuclear material from? From us.
0: From us. And know? South Korea did not dismantle their the infrastructure. Hmm. They just stopped the program, but the infrastructure is still there. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so maybe not as. I'm sorry. And North
0: Korea's immediately under Kim il Sung sent uh people to Moscow to learn literally like nuclear physics, etc. Um it was he, he literally one of his first requests even from China was assistance for nuclear programs. I was like, No. Like I don't think so. Um, are, we but I mean, are we talking about North Korea? No, we're land? talking about North Korea. Okay, just making sure. Okay. Um, I mean, same thing with Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan's nuclear program was helped, literally, ironically, by an Indian nuclear physicist. So, um, we also helped, I think it was either Britain or France, with theirs. Um, but it's, it's not difficult to fathom that already established nuclear power that's more so friendly to, to uh, Taiwan or does not like China. Will help Taiwan same way that Iran received assistance from North Korea for, for their program. Yeah. So.
1: So I mean, nuclear proliferation. As much as we try and advocate, or hell, even like it, it's spread, it that still proliferates. Even yeah. Al
0: Qaeda wanted dirty bombs. They wanted nuclear weapons.
1: I know. They want. They try to go to
3: Tajikistan and uh, Kyrgyzstan to try to go Stupid. into the radioactive soil in
1: some areas. Stupid. Yeah, but I, I think I think non-state act. I think China or Japan would be a better example Source. than non-state actors for Taiwan's situation. Yeah. I mean they have the capability. I'm sure they have nuclear engineers there. More more right. on well, no, than for, Japan, Japan, for
3: Japan, like it's it, the best estimate they say is it will take a month for that's, Japan to make its nuclear weapon. The only thing that's stopping it is how do people feel about it. And even when I went there, trust me, a lot of people have a, a lot of things to
0: say. well, of course. But then again, as we know what as time goes on and things develop, people minds when it when their survival, is at risk will change. I mean, it goes back to what, not to geek out, to what Aristotle stated when he talked about natural justice. Give me something to throw you. <laughs> That when he talk Aristotle uh, talked about uh, natural justice, is that when the stake of, are you going to spray me with Clorox? <laughs> <laughs> Brian trying to kill me. <laughs> the, Brian the Reeves just pulled out a mysterious blue
1: liquid in a spray bottle. He was carrying this thing around. Biological weapon. My goodness. He <laughs> said so I was carrying it around. Aristotle.
0: Stated when it came to the notions of justice that when the when the survival or the sake of the political community of the community is at risk, then there are exceptions that can be made when it comes to the definition of justice. That's correct. Yeah. So in peacetime, nobody is going to say, yeah, let's spend money on bullet on like nukes and ballistic missiles." Well, there's there's no existential crisis in a relative peacetime, but now. As we see things, you know, Taiwan and China remilitarization and their rhetoric, and now uh, Japan's state on state government. warfare. State on state warfare in conventional senses coming back, but in a different type of um, modus operandi, mm-hmm. in some senses. People will start to, to change their opinions, um, especially when their future may not be directly guaranteed. Um, so, yeah. Japanese population may be against the production of nuclear weapons. But like you said, our estimates that it'll only take Japan a month. Um, and in, in that case, if something were to happen, as we always seen in these types of democracies, public opinions shift, sometimes on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. We'll have to see. Just like I'm bad of South Koreans don't even see North Korea as a threat like that anymore. Every time they see a ballistic missile test, they're like, oh, yeah, okay, okay, that was another one. Um, but that in itself is dangerous, because then it's like they shoot a missile. You're like, okay, whatever, and then they attack. You're not prepared. Um, same thing for Japan, et cetera, attack, so on and so forth. But that's just a rabbit hole I'm not gonna get into. Uh, we've been talking for almost two hours now. I'm tired. I need some water. He <laughs> <laughs> needs some milk. I need that too. I got my to right <laughs> I'm in my jammies. I'm in my jammies. So
1: he looks slovenly. See, see, he got quiet. He's not even, he doesn't
0: even deny it. He's like, mm. I'm going to just leave it on that comment.
1: but
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that being said, uh, much love. Stay blessed.